Do we have children? Are there children leaving? Are we good? I think we're good. We, we are completely devoid of children in here. So if you're uh, grades K through 5, there are classes going on. If you're stuck in here and you want to get out, you can go now. This is your chance. But no kids with us today. Let me grab this. Oh, man. Well, how are we doing? Everybody's Advent season's going well so far. You know, we just sang some songs that were pretty, pretty old. Uh, the most part, uh, come now fount, oh come divine Messiah, these songs of longing. And not too long ago, a little bit now, uh, another man wrote a song uh, sort of trying to encapsulate Christmas, trying to grasp the meaning of it. And he wrote, a very merry Christmas and a happy new year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fear. And so this is Christmas for weak and for strong For rich and the poor ones, the world is so wrong. And so, happy Christmas for black and for white. For yellow and red ones, let's stop all the fight. And so, this is Christmas. War is over. And what have we done? Another year over. Another one just begun. And so, this is Christmas. War is over if you want it. Now that song was, of course, written by the Apostle John. All right. We haven't yet to canonize him yet, but he was very much a prophet. Uh, not John of the Gospels, not John of Revelation, or even John the Baptist. John Lennon. And John Lennon saw it. He saw the meaning of Christmas plain and simple. War is over. All the striving, all the pain has come to an end. But the second part of that line, and I think he really touched on something incredibly profound. He says, war is over if you want it. And I'm sitting here saying, well, John, of course we want that. Like, if you ask everybody to get past their little materialistic Christmas wishes, you know, what, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, we want world peace. We want unity. We want uh, all the, the fighting, the strife to come to an end. War is over if you want it. But who wouldn't want war to be over? Who can bear another image of, of another child maimed in the fighting in Syria? I, I can't even look anymore. When I, when I see these images come across my screen, I, I, I turn away because I can't handle it anymore. Who, who can bear another uh, Christmas time where people are remembering the loved ones that they've lost? Who can bear another Christmas time where children are remembering that their family used to be together at Christmas time? War is over. And of course we want it, John. Of course we want that. We want war to be finished. But John Lennon captures the longing of Advent. Our longing is for the end of violence, for justice, and for peace. N.T. Wright calls these things that all of humanity would agree on. If you, if you were to walk out of this church right now, and you were to go to the shopping mall, and you were to say, hey, would you, would you like for conflicts around the world to come to an end? Where you, just, you would just survey random people. They would, of course, say yes. You don't have to be a Christian to want these sorts of things. All of humanity is longing for this, wants this sort of justice, this sort of peace that we can live at, at, at one with another. And so N.T. Wright calls these things the, the echoes of a voice. That there's something inside of us that wants these uh, to, to be brought to bear. There's something so familiar and yet so foreign 
they sound like home in a language that we've never heard. And guys, the question that we, we ask, that we start is, do you want war to be over? And of course, we all would enthusiastically agree. So why? Why if we would all want war to be over? Why if we all want a world that lives in this sort of peace and unity? Why is the world the way that it is? Why can't we just make it happen if everybody wants it to happen? Isaiah, son of Amos, was a prophet living in Jerusalem in the 8th century. And at the height of the economic prosperity of the nation, he began to see cracks in the foundation. Israel was a called people, called to be a light to the nations, called to be a kingdom of priests, a people who were different because they modeled God's care for the weakest among them. But they were behaving like every other nation. And Isaiah describes the rampant injustice in Isaiah chapter 1. He, he brings this charge before them. He says, this is what the Lord has against you. He says, when you come, beginning in verse 12 of Isaiah 1, when you come to appear before me, who asks this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. These instruments of worship, God says, I don't want any more because you're not doing what I asked you to do. He goes on in verse 14. Your new moons and your appointed festival my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I, have we- I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And it's here that we get a glimpse into the void between the things that we all want and the reasons that perhaps things are not the way we would want them to be. Yes, we want this world of justice and peace and harmony. But the reality is, is exactly what Isaiah is pointing out, is that we are sinful. We are a people who are designed to go after our own ends. And injustice, as Isaiah tells us, is a result not of everybody else failing to know God, Not of all the people that are at the store right now or people that aren't in church. It's not their problem. It's the problem of the people of God. The prophets always start with the people of Israel and say, this is what the Lord has against you. And so I'm bringing these charges against you. Injustice doesn't start with everybody else. It starts with us. Now maybe we can drill this down a little bit. Uh, For for many of you, uh, you've probably noticed we live in a culture that is easily outraged. Uh, quick to point out all the things that are wrong with the world, quick to point out how everybody else is doing it wrong. And, and you see this on your social media feed. You see this uh, perhaps with, uh, you know, hopefully not at the dinner table at Thanksgiving. But we see this, this world that is quick to look outside of ourselves and say, that, that's what's wrong with the world. And so I think about this in my own uh, sort of twisted way. Uh, I, if, if you know anything about me, I have very few things that I'm really type A about. Uh, a couple things. Uh, things like driving. Uh, one thing that drives me insane, and maybe you can relate to this, I absolutely detest when people speed through my neighborhood. Like, the, the speed limit is posted. It's 25 miles an hour. There are kids playing here, and you're going 40. The other day, I'll tell you two stories that just sort of shed a little light on this brokenness, and then you can proceed to judge me accordingly. Uh, but it's happened before where I was going out to pick up the trash cans, And I saw a person driving very fast down our street. Our street serves as sort of a pass-through between a couple of other 
main streets. And so I was going to get the trash cans, and I saw this guy was driving too fast, and I just rolled the trash can out in the middle of the street. And I was like, bro, there's kids at play here, man. Just slow down. And on Friday night, I'm walking the dog, and it's late at night, uh, so I'm used to this. But we have a street that, that runs along our street that's by the, uh, the train station there in West Trenton. And it, people just go crazy fast. Like, I, I'm so tempted to, to, like, become an activist and go full on. Let's get speed bumps on this street. So I'm walking on this street, and I'm right by the speed limit sign, and this guy is just flying down the road. I always assume it's a guy. It probably is. Um, and I'm walking my dog, and I'm right by the speed limit sign. And I, just, I just stand here, and I just point. I'm like, is that what speed you're doing? So I, and I'll tell you one more story. My, my father, I'll never forget this. <laughs> This is about my dad, so this is just telling you where I get it from. We were playing basketball in my street. We used to live on a very similar street, and we're, we're uh, shooting around, and he gets the ball, and this guy's flying down the street. He gets the ball, picks it up, and just flings it at the car. Now, uh, I'm still amazed to this day. He hit the back of the car, and my dad's got the whole, he's got the arms up thing going on, and the guy stops for a second and then decides better of it and just keeps driving. And so I feel so good when I'm right. And I know in this moment that I'm right. I'm protecting children. I'm protecting myself. I know there's something in there that's righteous. But what about when we actually start to peel back the layers? You know, what's the ugliness behind that? Why do I feel the need to interact with people in that way? Would I interact with somebody who wasn't in a car, that wasn't surrounded by this depersonalizing box that made them, you know, like somebody I couldn't look at face to face. You see, what Isaiah is addressing is something that I come to grips with often in my life, and it's often really painful and often really surprising, but it's the fact that injustice doesn't start outside of me. It starts with me. It starts with my anger and my bitterness, and even when I'm right, I have some pretty poor ways of going about uh, expressing that. And so Isaiah makes this point very clear. He says, injustice starts with us. Uh, there's a guy named W.H. Auden. He wrote a poem that we're going to use as a, a bit of a framework tonight, uh, or today. Joanna, you have the first part, the Pilgrim Way, uh, if you want to put that up there. Thank you. The Pilgrim Way has led to the abyss. Was it to meet such grinning evidence that we left our richly odored ignorance? Was the triumphant answer to be this? The Pilgrim Way has led to the abyss. The pilgrim way. Isaiah describes this in his uh, prophecy against the nation. This is the way of going it alone. For the people in Isaiah, this defined uh, the people of God. Idolaters, selfish, sinful. Not that they cared for the least among them, but that they were people who didn't worship God and that they oppressed those in their very neighborhoods. Advent, this season that we are in, church, as we begin to lead up towards Christmas, is a collision of kingdoms. The kingdom of humanity left to its own devices collides with the kingdom of God. And this collision eventually confronts us as a church community, as a body, and it confronts us as individuals. The pilgrim way, this way that Alden describes, has cut God out of the process. You see, God, God is the author of all knowledge, of all power, all pleasure. He himself is love. Advent is confronting us to look at the world, our world, where there is no knowledge of God, 
uh, where the rich and the strong bend the rules to their favor to see the strife in our own neighborhoods, our own zip codes, and our relationships and ask this very scary question, what is my part in all of this? How have I contributed to this brokenness that I see around me? Because again, it's so easy to look outside of us and say, if only these things would be fixed and the world would be better. Perhaps what God is inviting us to do during this season of Advent is to say, look inside. Look in the mirror. You see, the reality of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 1, and what we're going to see as we proceed to Isaiah 11, is the reality of our lives. The reality that Alden is describing so pointedly. See, we have all gone the pilgrim way. We have followed the path of our own selfishness, our own ability are depending on our own goodness or following our own desires, and we have followed it to its logical end. The pilgrim way leads to the abyss. Our going our own way leads us to the mouth of the grave. And this is the reality that the people who heard Isaiah's prophecies would eventually face. You see, Isaiah is prophesying on the front side of what would become a deep and painful and really a sort of existential crisis called exile. Isaiah is meeting them, Isaiah 1, he's saying, if you keep going this way, God is going to abandon you to the logical end of your actions. And guys, sin still does this in our lives today. Sin has this way of allowing us to follow the route of leading us to the mouth of the grave. And maybe you know this feeling all too well. Maybe this feeling that you would go another way if you just could, but you feel powerless. It sounds a lot like slavery, does it not? And so this is the reality we are confronted with every Advent. There's two things that are sort of working both in collision with one another and in concert together. The first, and it always starts with God, it always starts with His love, His revelation for us, is that God is for us. Advent tells us this unequivocally, that God is coming into the middle of our madness. God is for us. But the second, the corollary, the thing that works right up against it is that we are for us. We are first and foremost creatures who look after our own ends, our own desires. And so the reality, where where these two questions diverge, where these two things sort of meet and pull apart together is that we need something beyond ourselves. We need a Messiah. There's a guy named Abraham Heschel. And he is not a Christian, but he writes beautifully about the prophets. And so he writes about what it looks like for the people in the Old Testament, what it looks like for them uh, to sort of come to grips with this. And he says, uh, you can put that up there, Joanna. Had the prophets relied on human resources for justice and righteousness, on man's ability to fulfill all of God's demands, on man's power to achieve redemption, they would not have insisted upon the promise of messianic redemption. For messianism implies that any course of living, even the supreme efforts of man by himself, must fail in redeeming the world. In other words, human history is not sufficient unto itself. Man's conscience is timid. While the world is ablaze with agony, his perception is shallow, often defective, and his judgment is liable to deception. This word, Messiah, is the, the embodiment of a person, the embodiment of a kingdom and a rule that we're about to look at. If you want to turn your Bibles, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 11 and see where our need for God and His meeting us meet. 
So Isaiah chapter 11, we read uh, some excerpts from it as we were worshiping today. It says, a shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. We need a Messiah. And yet what we read here is not what we would expect from somebody that we need. Because right here it sounds like God is going to come and he's going to judge you know, it says that he's going to kill the wicked with the breath of his lips. This sounds like an angry, vindictive God, the one that we've been trying to get away from. But perhaps, perhaps it's right in this tension where we have been trying to make our own way. We've been following the pilgrim way to the abyss where God is saying that there's a better way, that we need to actually hear what God is saying to us today. You see, in our society, when we talk about things like judgment... We, we hear that this is the greatest of all social sins. Uh, to be judgmental is to be narrow-minded, is to be bigoted, but that is not what's going on here. A recent survey asking people to uh, describe evangelical Christians in America uh, concluded that the one overarching word that people would describe Christians in America with is judgmental. And so it's interesting that we follow a God, as we're going to see, who judges in very different ways than our world's standards. Uh, We're so scared of judgment in our world because of what it does. It's reductive. It places labels on people, reducing them to objects. But that is not the sort of judgment that is in view here. You see, the judgment of God is not about calling things the way that they are. But it's about a power and a a rule and a reign that is able to bring things about the way that they should be. The the judgment of God is redemptive. Ridding the world of the things that don't align with his coming kingdom. Judgment, as we tend to think of it, deal with the way that we see things. And it's so beautiful that he says right here, this, this coming Messiah, this shoot of Jesse, will not judge by what he sees. He will not judge because he's not interested in labeling you. You know, I think one of the things that we fear most about judgment is that we, the things that we think about ourselves, the things that we almost know to be true about ourselves in our darker moments, that God, the God of the universe who sees everything is going to look at us and say, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And, and if you think about the sort of judgments that you carry around, have you ever had somebody speak a word over you that you still carry around to this day? Have you ever had somebody say something to you that was so off-handed and off the cuff, but you still just have that sort of eating away at you? Uh, maybe it wasn't even on purpose, but you carry those words around. And, and so when we talk about judgment, it's, a, it's an amazing dynamic to me. Because I think of my own life. I think of the few times that somebody, either because they were trying to or because they were just insensitive, has hurt me in a deep and profound way. Those words that I still carry around. I think about those things. And then I think about 
all of the amazing encouragements I have received throughout my life, all the people that have been there for me in beautiful and amazing ways that have been building me up, why do I only remember the really dumb things, the really mean things, the really uh, cutting things? What is it about us that latches on to those things? And so I think when we talk about God judging us, we are so afraid that He is just doing what everybody else tends to do or seems to do. Is that God is the one who calls us eternally broken, eternally uh, somebody who will never have it all together, eternally uh, sort of given over to slavery. But that is not the judgment that we have here. This Messiah... This one who comes with the Spirit of the Lord upon him will judge. He will judge in the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of truth. His word slays sin and death. The slave masters of the pilgrim way, this pilgrim way that has led us to the mouth of the grave, God is saying, those are the things that I am judging. It's your own brokenness that's keeping you enslaved that I am ridding the world of. His judgment truly, truly makes wars cease. As Psalm 46 says, his word makes war cease to the ends of the earth. War is truly coming to an end in this beautiful kingdom of God. And so church, I'm inviting you to see that God's judgment is not something that we need to run from. It is something that is building us up that is redemptive. Advent is confronting us with the judgment of God. And and now when we hear judgment, we tend to think of what we make of it in our society or maybe some medieval images of uh, Dante-like torture and the Zeus-like God throwing thunderbolts at people. God is judging. But this is not the God that we see here. Uh, We we think of these terms of judgment, we think that's so, so distant that it sounds like a God who's far off, who's just standing in judgment of the world. But what we have in the Advent story is not a God who's far off. We have a God who is coming near. John the Baptist says the kingdom of heaven is coming near. And what we see in Jesus is this surprising thing that nobody would have ever expected, is that the God of the universe is taking on flesh and blood and coming right into the middle of our neighborhoods. It's an astounding story. God is bringing His kingdom near. And the question that we have for us today, the question that we have when we talk about the judgment of God, is a question of trust. Are we going to trust God's evaluations of us? Or are we going to trust our own inclinations? You see, Auden goes on. In the second part of his poem, he says the pilgrim way leads to the, the abyss, but he says we, we who must die, demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. John 3 will describe it this way. For God so loved the world, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. This is the judgment of God. But in order that the world might be saved through Him, those who believe in Him are not condemned. But those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, 
that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come into the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. So what is God's judgment of us? That God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. The infinite has in fact become a finite fact. He's become flesh and blood. Maybe you're here today and you haven't been in church for a while. And you're saying, see, church never changes. Always judgment. Always getting back to that. But God's judgment is not a judgment like the world's judgment. God is not judging to punish you see, our judgments, even our, in our legal system, are designed to place a label on somebody. Guilty or innocent. This or that. But God's judgment does not see things that way. God's judgment is saying, this is what should be. Without God's judgment, the forces of sin and darkness will still keep us enslaved. Without the, the miracle that we demand to save us, without the thing that we need that's outside of us, without acknowledging that we need a Messiah We're going to be stuck in our own sins, our own brokenness. The light has shone in the darkness. God is not saying, look, look how messed up you are. Look how broken you are. You'll never be anything. God is shining a light and saying, look at your shackles. Look at the things that are keeping you from life. He's saying, look at them. You can't break them. I am the one, the shoot of Jesse, whose my word can actually slay sin and death. I am the one who's powerful enough to break your chains. So yes, he is exposing our darkness. He's exposing my brokenness. But church, I hope you can see that we all, we all stand under God's judgment. We all have gone our own way, the pilgrim way that leads to the mouth of the grave. And we all need a Messiah to come and save us. Sometimes, have you ever been working on a project at home and just realized that you've come to the end of your expertise? I mean, for me, it doesn't take long. And there's this feeling of, I, I, don't, I feel so helpless. I really do. Like, I just sit there, like, cursing under my breath, doing whatever, but I'm just like, I'm so upset. Because, like, you just want the thing to work. You want it to work okay. And you're, you're running up against this knowledge that it's not going to work, and you have no ability to fix it. But have you ever made that initial phone call to the person who can fix it? You know, for me, like, I can call any number of people. I have some beautiful friends like Craig and Richard who are just really capable individuals. They can just fix stuff. And, and so there's this moment where I get a little bit of just a, a deep breath. and get to say, oh, thank you. This will work again. And so, guys, it's not a scary place to be in to say, I need help. And Advent is putting us in that position where whether we want to be or not. And I know that may sound weak to some of you. Some of you are captains of the universe who think that you, you never needed anybody's help. You could always pull yourself by your bootstraps and do your own thing. But God is saying that's the way to the abyss. He's exposing our brokenness and our darkness. His judgment exposes us for who we are and what we've done, but he does not condemn us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is his judgment upon the world because he is the only one who is the just and free judge. He is able to actually free us. In some parts of Appalachia, the, you know, where the Appalachian Mountains are, places like eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, uh, the coal industry has figured out a more efficient way 
uh, to mine coal. Now, if you know anything about mining coal, it's a pretty dangerous occupation. Uh, if you're familiar with the canary in the coal mine, what is the canary's job? To die. Thank you. Right. And so the canary is, is sort of put there, and, and if the canary dies, the coal miners know, hey, we need to get out of here. The noxious gases have reached a point where we're all going to die. Thank you for the bird that has sacrificed his life for us. Coal mining is dangerous. It's expensive. It's, you have to pay laborers. And so the coal industry has just cut out some of the uh, in-between parts of the process. <laughs> and so the way that they found to mine coal more efficiently is just to blow the mountain up. So there's a mountain in between us and some coal that we want, and so blow the mountaintop up. Boom! Now, this practice does, in fact, retrieve coal quite efficiently. Uh, But what fails to be accounted for are the truly catastrophic results that are done to the ecosystem, uh, even to the the, the economics of the regions, the places where this is happening. The people are incredibly poor. Uh, Things like the topsoil, truly the most valuable resource in the world because it enables things like food to grow and crops erodes away. The streams which feed the rivers are contaminated uh, with chemicals and toxins. And the rubble from the explosion, once you blow up a mountain, that stuff doesn't just eviscerate and disappear. It has to go somewhere. And so the companies will bulldoze all the rubble into the valleys, jeopardizing their ecosystem as well. And guys, this is what sin does in our lives. Sin is, a, is sort of promising something that it can't deliver. You see, coal is a non-renewable resource. It will run out. And sin is sort of our efficient way of getting at the thing that we think we need, the thing that we think we want. And it, it will eventually run out on us. You see, sin is, uh, for many of us, we have been blowing up the mountaintop for so long And if we were to survey the vista of our lives and look out, we've been bulldozing that rubble into the valley. We look over the valley, we'd say, all it is, rubble and ruins. All we see is this broken landscape of the things that our hands have wrought. But Advent announces that out of the ruins, our God will come to us. In the midst of all the mountains that we have blown up, trying to build our own kingdoms to be our own God, that our God, the God of the universe, will build his mountain where peace and justice truly reign. Our God will bring about the thing that we have all longed for and have all been so incapable of bringing about. And look at this mountain. I want to get like real big and real cosmic for just a minute as we're wrapping up today because it is so, so beautiful. On the mountain of God, if you read verses 6 through 9 in chapter 11, The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hands on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I know we get bogged down in all this animal stuff, but these are animals that might be tempted to eat one another, now living at peace. 
on God's holy mountain. They do not hurt or destroy. In Isaiah 2, he's describing the mountain. He's sort of refraining, and he says, on God's holy mountain, they will beat swords into plowshares. Weapons of warfare will no longer be used for violence and destruction, but they will become instruments of agriculture, of beauty, and of justice. On Isaiah 60, uh, in Isaiah 65, Isaiah is describing the mountain again as he keeps coming back to this mountain built from the ruins of our lives. And he says, no longer, no longer will a child only live a few days on God's holy mountain. God is going to do away with the things that threaten us, our own sins and the very death that is their end. In spite of all the ways we would try to build our own mountains, God himself is doing the thing that all of our human efforts could never, ever do. He himself is ending war. As John foresaw, Christmas means war is over if you want it. But what we see from God's beautiful coming to us is that war is over because he wants it. So what? What is our response to this judgment? The last thing, and we're going to put this into practice here in just a moment as we come to the table. First, it always starts with grace. It's always about God's story, about what he's done. And he has revealed himself to be more loving and more faithful than we ever could have imagined. It always starts with God. But we respond to this judgment of God with confession. We say that, that we have gone the pilgrim way and that we don't have it all together. And so our response to God's grace is to confess, yes, that's me. And you know what? God, you, you love me anyway. You see, we're, we're so afraid of God's judgment. What he's, has he called us? His judgment is love. His judgment is that we are his children. And so we confess. In confession, we, we acknowledge that we don't have it all together. Plain and simple. We acknowledge that we have gone our own way. Christians are not to be the people in the world who claim that they have it all together. In confession, we say that God's kingdom is better than ours. And so the fact that God is for us is better than the fact that we are for us. And so we invite God into our midst and we say, God, heal this broken world. Oh, come, divine Messiah. Let there be a world where weapons of warfare are no longer needed because they will not kill or destroy my holy mountain. Let there be a world where children always, always live out the fullness of their lives. And God is saying, yes and amen. I'm the one who brings that world to bear. So war is over because God wants it. Let's pray, church. God, you're gracious and you're good. You love us with a love that is beyond our comprehension. And so God, as we gather around the table this morning in confession, Lord, would we see that we are, we are judged by you. We are judged as your children. We are judged to be yours. And God, you so love the world that you judged it to be your own possession. And Lord, anything that threatens that good world, any strife in families, anything uh, that would lead us down uh, paths of brokenness into the mouths of the abyss, God, you are coming into the middle of and eradicating. So God, would you help us to be a people who see your presence in the midst of the brokenness of our lives? God, would you help us to be people who acknowledge that we cannot be healed by anything short of you? Lord God, we need you. We need your love in our lives. We need your forgiveness. We need you to come and judge the world in righteousness and with the Spirit of the Lord. Lord, until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth like it covers the waters of the sea. We love you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Over the next few minutes, we're going to put this into practice. 
And so during communion time, I'm going to invite you to just do a little bit of reflection and to say, where, where have I? Where have I gone the pilgrim way? Where have, I, where have my words not aligned with my motivations? I want war to be over. I want John Lennon's words to be true. But I find that my inclinations, my own selfish desires are constantly getting in the way. And so we're going to invite you. The band will be up here. They're going to play uh, briefly and give you a little time to do that. And then you'll see around the auditorium are uh, loaves of bread and a cup of juice. Now, we don't normally do it this way. Uh, but this uh, was the practice of the ancient church, was to have one loaf, as Paul says in Corinthians, and, and one cup. And we have multiple uh, for efficiency purposes. But to say, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. And he took the cup and he blessed it. He said, this is my blood, poured out for the sins of all. Guys, this is the judgment of God. That even though we were rebels, even though we were idolaters, even though we had gone the pilgrim way, that he came into the middle of our midst and he gave his very life that we might be restored in his beautiful image. And so today, church, if you find yourself in addiction, if you find yourself in sin and brokenness, you are not alone. Jesus, the God of the universe, has come for you. Advent is a season of longing, a season of reflection. And so we invite God to come into our midst and to do the thing that we could never do for ourselves. And so church, I invite you to reflect. Maybe God is convicting you of something. And then as you go, uh, go to the stations and receive communion. You'll take uh, a piece of the bread, try to pull it off with one hand, and then dip it in the cup. And there'll be some students here to serve you. You guys can go ahead and take your place now. And uh, we will go from there. All right.